0: But if you look at your insurances on your house and your car, which insurance costs more? Your car insurance. Well, why the hell, if your house is worth a multiple of what your car costs, why the heck is the insurance so different? And the reason is exactly what I said earlier.
1: Welcome to the FI Show you get a behind the scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin.
2: Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the FI show where today we have on Joe Saul-Sehy and Emily Guy Burkin,
1: authors of the new book Stacked. But before that, let me check in my co-host Justin. What is going on, man? Well, this past weekend was another weekend of kind of just doing projects around the house. I did build us a dining room table that I'm excited about finishing. But I am today sitting in Boulder, Colorado. We flew out here yesterday, got some work meetings um, today and tomorrow. But actually, when I flew out yesterday, we got into Denver at like 10 o'clock, got the rental car, got to the mountain at like 1.30 to Keystone, and got two hours of solid skiing. in. it's been a while. It's been uh, about a year since I've been out here skiing. And I freaking love skiing in Colorado. So that was pretty awesome to get uh, some time on the slopes. And after the meetings today and tomorrow, we're actually going to get back out there for Thursday through Sunday, and head back to Austin on Monday. So assuming that, you know, make it through that trip unscathed, cross my fingers because I am skiing on some sketchy equipment. I actually paid $50 for all my equipment back in 2015, and still, you know, tearing up the back bowls and the black diamonds, but uh, how about you, Cody?
2: Well, for those who were listening last week, I kind of teased where I was going to be. If you can hear the rustling of the palm trees, that's because I'm recording this on the balcony of my hotel room in Aruba. So I had some friends who got married here four years ago, and they decided to have a wedding reunion party. There's about 40 of us in my hometown, so it's a whole group of people. It's a ton of fun. It's an all-inclusive resort. There's a swim-up pool bar. The beach is a stone's throw away. I can see it from where I'm recording this right now. We're doing a bunch of excursions this week. We have a catamaran cruise. We have a bus tour that brings you to all the bars in the city. We have a UTV tour, which is basically like dune buggies that can go on the street and all over the sand and the dirt. But yeah, I'll fill everyone in next week with a full Aruba recap, but I'm just kind of soaking in the 82 degree sunny weather. It's a lot better than the seven degrees in Massachusetts we had when we left. But Justin, I think that's enough about us. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called personal capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data. It crunches all your assets, all your liabilities and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month.
1: Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401Ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about Personal Capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at the slash PC. That's the slash PC.
2: All right. So today's episode features Joe Saul Cihai and Emily Guy Birkin, authors of the new personal finance book, Stacked. So if you guys have been listening to our show for a while, we actually had Joe back on episode 98. Joe is a riot, but he's a, he's a smart riot. He likes to deliver things in a jokey type of way, but he got into this financial space a couple decades ago. So we get to kind of unpack how this partnership formed between Joe and Emily, what the book is all about, who it's going to help, and much more in this episode.
1: The thing I love about this episode is you really see how Joe and Emily are this great pair, how they kind of feed off each other. They have different strengths and weaknesses, and they went about this by writing the book in such a brilliant way to me. Like It sounds like it's going to be so much more consumable. Than a lot of materials like they're not trying to be overly serious although they are hitting a lot of really important and serious items like i think this is going to be a book like joe said where you're going to pull this out over the course of your life and these different moments these different phases that you're in and they actually get all the way into even estate planning which i thought was pretty awesome but obviously don't need to cover all that here we'll get into all that and if you want to find more links about the book when it's coming out about both the authors you want to share this with someone because you know that someone could really use this book in their life, you can find all that information over at thefyshow.com slash stacked. That's thefyshow.com slash stacked. Take it away, Joe and Emily.
0: I was a real mess up with my money in the early 90s, directly out of college, made sure I wrecked my credit right away. And what's kind of scary is I became a financial planner during this time. Like I was horrible with money but I was still telling other people what to do with their money. And it was in the mid nineties, I started getting my act together. And it was funny how quickly I went from what's that line? Zero to hero, right? (laughs) I went from bad to maybe not hero, but I went from bad to good with money and then sold my business. When I turned 40, we talked about this, I think last time when I was on and wanted to become a high school teacher between classes, I was writing a blog in my spare time blog became the podcast. Became stacking Benjamins, and now we're on like episode twelve hundred of this show that just turned a decade old.
1: That's a pretty good rundown, Emily. We can give you a little more time though, (laughs) since we haven't had you uh, had the sneak preview before. So,
3: I'm a high school English teacher by training. I majored in English and French literature, so nothing to do with finance. And I ended up getting a master's degree in English education. Taught high school English for four years, and then because I'm an expert at timing, I was having a baby and my husband got a new job in another state and the baby was due at the beginning of the following school year. So that year was a wash in terms of teaching. So the plan was I was going to take a year off just to stay home with my baby and that was going to be it and I'd go back to the classroom. And in that year, I wanted to keep a little bit of money coming in. My goal was to be able to pay my student loans even while I was not working. So I was looking for freelance writing gigs, and one of the first ones that I landed was for a financial website. You might be going like, okay, Shakespeare to finance, how did you do that? My dad was a financial planner, so it wasn't completely out of left field. And I have been a lifelong money nerd, but it never occurred to me that it was anything I actually knew anything about. It was just something I was kind of interested in. So the uh, financial website really liked my work. They uh, passed my name along to all of their friends, invited me to the first FinCon, said, I think you'd get a lot out of this. And so I went, I feel very lucky. It was close to where I was living at the time because if I'd had to fly, I wouldn't have gone. And things just kind of snowballed from there. So from that first FinCon, I landed a regular column on the dollar stretcher. And from that column, my first book, the editor, the editor, was familiar with my work on the dollar stretcher and thought that I would be a good fit for a book that they wanted to have written five years before you retire. And so I was like, yes, please. I would very much like to do that. Thank you. (laughs) And so I ended up writing four books for that publisher. And then this uh, screwball that I had met once or twice called me up out of the blue once. and was like, you want to write a book with me? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Who is that? So that's how I ended up uh, working with Joe on this new book, Stacked.
2: And so how did you guys end up meeting? Was it through the FinCon community? Had you met at that first FinCon? Or Joe, I'm not sure if you're a FinCon 12-year or however many years they've been running that thing at this point.
0: I missed that first one that Emily went to. I wasn't there. I just started my blog, but a month before, and I thought if I've been blogging for a month, I should know what I was doing first. And I truly should have gone. By the way, somebody's even thinking about starting stuff because you guys all know. You'll come out of that conference just rocking and much more focused. So even if you just have a dream, just go do it. But I know I didn't do it. And I don't remember exactly the first time, Emily, that you and I met, but I do know that our many discussions, Emily always has this phenomenal sense of humor that she's often not allowed to use at her work. <laughs> And for this project, which was kind of campy and meant to be us having a lot of fun while giving good money advice, I thought, who would be my first choice as somebody that I could work with on this? And I'm like, I wonder if Emily would say yes. And the pitch I didn't think was very good. (laughs) It was kind of a weird pitch. Here's what I'm thinking about. And maybe we can talk about that because it it was kind of weird. But luckily, she's like, yeah, I'm in. And, And that was super cool.
1: That actually is what I was about to ask. Like, it sounds like you, Joe, initiated the conversation. So what was this idea that you were bringing to the table? I mean, because obviously there's yeah. been plenty of finance books yeah. out there, but what was this new idea you had?
0: Well, and it's funny you say that, Justin, because like, you know, you guys interview tons of people and you start seeing this, this there's, there's some projects, some things that are really cool, but there's areas that are missing. And while there were really fun things, um, a lot of books don't focus on the gamification of money. Um, and there are books that are funny and are clever and I think that they're really good but one that really focuses on if you gamify it it's going to be a lot easier to get this done works but I had written a book it had taken me about 10 years and I handed it to my wife when I finished and uh, Cody's met Cheryl and and <laughs> I handed it to Cheryl and Cheryl about 12 seconds later said this really sucks Like <laughs> said, this is not good and, and you know what that's why she's my best friend and it was it, it she, she was exactly right it was way it, it, it was nothing like our show about stacking Benjamins. It wasn't light. It wasn't fun. It was much more, you know, the voice of reason, the one person who's going to dispense all the great financial, but it was horrible. And uh, so, but I knew that, that, that I had this germ of, of an idea that I wasn't meeting. So I'm out in Portland, Oregon at this bookstore called Powell's. I don't know if you guys have been to Powell's, Yeah. but Powell's is like, you know, it's a block long, it's this really quirky place, wonderful bookstore. And I get lost going from section to section. Just I get great inspiration from all these different sections. And you guys all know me and uh, will know this is true. And I tell you that I ended up in the kids section. So and I and I see this book, the Hardy Boys Detective Manual. And I don't know if you guys read this book, but this was written with the help of a real live FBI agent. And they tell you everything about becoming a detective. And I remember when I was in fourth grade, my brother and I carried this book everywhere. We dog-eared the hell out of it. And I remember, like, my dad worked for General Motors, and he would leave on, like, a muddy day. And we'd go out and look at the tire tracks because it taught us that. And then my mom would touch a door handle, and we'd be right behind her with the tape getting her fingerprint off the doorknob, you know? And, uh, and I thought, man, if there were a book that were like that, that adults would carry around that lovingly, like as a guide, you don't necessarily read it end to end. It's just going to be a guide and help you with all the different areas of finance, give you some good tips. That would be awesome, but also a little campy. And then uh, I was living in Detroit at the time and flew home and my mom has a key to our house and I get there and by the way I'm 50 years old at this point right and we come in the house and my mom has finally given me that crap from her attic that she hasn't been able to trust me with until I turn 50 like you don't know what Joe's going to do with that bowling trophy that he and his dad got or whatever my my little league pictures but in there was the Cub Scout Wolf Guide and I wasn't in Scouts for a long time but the cool thing is and you guys know this gamification is, is Is really awesome. And and a lot of these fintech makers are really doing a great job with taking this onerous stuff and making it much easier. But the Cub Scouts were doing it back when I was 10. Like every chapter wasn't a chapter. It's an achievement. And when you open it up, it says all the tools you're going to need. Then it succinctly tells you how to do the stuff. And then at the bottom is, did you do this? You check these boxes to show proficiency. And then there's a place at the bottom for your mom to sign it, right? (laughs) So to prove that you did it, then you get your badge. And I thought, that is it. So when I called Emily, I'm like, here's what I want to do. And by the way, this is the same pitch we gave to Penguin Random House, the world's biggest publisher when we're shopping this project. So, you know, the Zoom call ends with, so what I want to (laughs) do is we'd like to take the Hardy Boy's detective manual, combine it with the Cub Scout Wolf Guide, but make it for adults and about money. And I was so surprised talking to Emily and talking to Penguin that like the Zoom call didn't automatically end right then. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Found a you reason to was up on the laptop. <laughs> like, OK, Joe. <laughs> yeah. But Emily was
0: like, I'm in. And then Penguin was like, yeah, that sounds really fun. So, yeah, we got to do it, which was a blast.
2: Getting it done. So, Emily, Joe comes to you with this idea. You had already written a money book at this point, five years before you retire, How does Joe Robian do another one? I know the money book process or just any book process is so long, so arduous. You go through all these revisions. You have to meet all these publishing deadlines. And then Joe just reels you in with his words for another one and and pulls you on to detective, (laughs) you know, Cub Scout book with money in it.
3: (laughs) So, yeah, this wasn't my first rodeo. I had written actually four books prior to this. There are two aspects to it. One, like Joe said, I don't often get to indulge my sense of humor. My editor for my previous books was really kind about letting me include like references to Scrooge McDuck swimming through a vault of coins, things like that. But like the more overt humor just X'd out. And like, I ended up having to self-censor quite a bit for a lot of things. Everything that I write, you know, when I'm writing for Forbes, when I'm writing for, you know, Wisebread, with someone I wrote for many years. I think of something that would crack me up and then I'd be like, yep, that's going to get it out. I'm not going to put it in. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea of doing something where I'm like, it's just like, let your humor off the leash, baby, was very exciting to me. And then it, it also was exciting because I had a specific audience in mind, that is Joe, in that when I'm writing, I'm trying to crack him up. And so like that was one of the things that's tough about humor is knowing who you're writing for, if you're just kind of writing for a general audience. And so knowing that I'm trying to crack Joe up, and I'm assuming if I make him laugh, that's going to make other people laugh. That actually was just really a great challenge for my creativity, for my writing, for my humor. I I was really looking forward to that. And then the other aspect of it is I actually really like the process of writing a book. It's Not something that most people are going to say like, yay, let's go sit down and do this. But there's something very satisfying to me about coming up with the outline, figuring out what chapters are going to be and, you know, getting things down on paper and then refining them and all of that. There are certainly times in every single one of these books where I've like torn out my hair and been like, why couldn't I have been a zookeeper? But. I find it a very satisfying process. And I actually one of the things that was really exciting about doing this was with Joe was I discovered how much I like collaboration because that's not something I've done a whole lot of. And so that's actually kind of affected how I do other things. Like I have a friend who planning on collaborating with on a fiction project and, you know, recognizing that that can be a really satisfying and exciting way to write is, is pretty cool.
1: Well, emily you just mentioned collaboration i feel like anytime with a team like this especially you know a successful one you know you're going to have some like strengths and weaknesses like you're going to be different from each other you're going to kind of not maybe be complete opposites but you're going to have things that one does better than the other you just mentioned a lot of structure i don't know why but i just envisioned joe taping just drawings to the wall and doodles and like hey we could do this and and you're keeping him on track Dude, i'm He's, right here i'm oh, right here oh, oh is he still on <laughs> Give us the breakdown. Give us the real truth now on like what the dynamic was, like who was doing what, like who had the, you know, who took which area?
3: I mean, part of the reason why Joe brought me on is he knew that I'd be good about the structure, which is kind of hilarious to me because I think of myself as all over the place. But I I, I think that's just in comparison to where I want to be. So like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're counting on me for structure and discipline. I'm like, oh boy, what does that mean? <laughs> I brought that kind of uh, viewpoint to it of like, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to establish it by doing that. And if we're going to establish that, we need to do the other and kind of putting things in order. And that was one of the things that I learned being a teacher, you know, like how to build on skills and things like that. I think that that was something I have a, like kind of a, once it's decided, it's decided status quo kind of bias. And Joe very much is like, how can we improve? How can we improve? Where can we uh, massage this? Where can we change? And so I think that's one thing that he brings to this that was really, really great because it's just not how I think. Like, it's like, all right, that's decided. I am never thinking about it again. (laughs) (laughs) Looking
0: at our first drafts, Emily brought a lot of the money philosophy stuff to the table a lot of the stuff about how do you think about this? We have a chapter, which we try to include chapters from some of the many interviews we've done in stacking Benjamins. And it includes Dan Ariely, the great behavioral guy. And in that chapter, Emily wrote this wonderful stuff about, you know, people get analysis paralysis. You know, we've got so many different decisions to make when it comes to investing. And we have this fear missing out where we want to make sure we pick the right thing. So what do we do? We do nothing, which as you guys know is the worst thing. So she handled a lot of the philosophical stuff and I, the chapters that I did the first draft on relied more on my experience back when I was a financial planner and the stuff that I got to see back then. And, you know, and there's also some freedom from not being a financial planner anymore because I feel like especially our chapter that I wrote the first draft on about hiring financial planners, which you guys know that a lot of fire people are resistant to have financial advisors. I feel like because of my time away from it, I'm also able to bring a much broader stroke to that whole discussion about why I think that everybody needs advisors, but who you really want to hire and who you want to stay away from.
2: So leaning on that experience, Joe, that was actually one of the things I had written down I wanted to talk to you about. One was financial planners, because a lot of people in our community are just completely against financial planners of any kind. Yeah, and then also insurances. A lot of people think that every insurance company is just a ripoff. It's a scam. No way am I ever going to need or use this insurance. I can just save up my own emergency fund or my own nest egg in some investment vehicle. But you kind of make some good counterpoints in the book. I'd love if you could talk about that, you know, from your financial planner experience.
0: Yeah. Why don't, boy. I mean, those are both <laughs> huge topics. Those are huge. Yeah. But, but let's but let's start with financial planners, if that's all right with you. Because the place where I agree with my friends in the FIRE community is if you have a financial planner who takes this stuff away from you, puts you in high fee investments, isn't making you smarter, you need to do what I read that a lot of people do. You need to fire them. So when I hear people fire their financial planners, I'm like, that's cool. Because if they're not making you smarter than you should. The place where I disagree, I think it's 100% ridiculous to think that you have all the answers to any problem that you don't have a blind side. I was a financial planner for 16 years. All my clients have blind sides. And even when I wouldn't get hired by somebody or I would tell them not to hire me, there were people that I didn't think it was a great idea to hire me. We weren't a fit. But there wasn't one person who walked in my office that I didn't give suggestions to be better when they walked out the door. So I look at a good advisor relationship a lot like General Motors, and I have a ton of respect for Mary Barra, the CEO at GM, and not that GM's this rocket stock now and doing phenomenal stuff, but the fact that she's kept them relevant in this rust, you know, rust belt city, and all the hard times GM's gone through, and the fact that they're still a factor, I think, is it owes a lot to Mary's leadership. Mary doesn't have a relationship with her quote advisors at GM where she comes in twice a year and goes, hey, so car people, tell me about this car thing. How we doing? I've left you alone for six months and now let me know how it goes. No, Mary goes to all the meetings, right? So if we're going to put this in fire terminology, she goes to Camp Fi, she digs in, she talks to other money nerds, she reads all the stuff, she dives into it, she knows what's going on. But what's cool is it doesn't end there. She still has people in her corner that know her and know what her goals are To show her her blind side, my number one coach, I have too many coaches in too many different areas because I always want to be the dumbest person in every room. My number one coach, Mary Lou, has a glasses three quarters empty point of view. And you guys know me well enough to know I'm always glasses three quarters full, right? Everything's going to be rosy. We're all trying to get ahead. No, there are people that are trying to screw you. There's bad stuff happening. And Joe is completely oblivious to any of that. So Mary Lou has a completely different viewpoint of the world than I do. That's not who we usually surround ourselves with. We usually surround ourselves with people who think like we do, act like we do, like the same stuff. You don't want that as a coach. I think you want somebody who protects your blind side and knows you because as nice as some of the online forums are that we're all in and where we talk to each other, Earl in Peoria, who doesn't even know how to zip up his damn pants, is the person who has the biggest problem with whatever you're doing financially. It cracks me up when anybody's like, hey, so I got this problem. They're like, no, fire those people, change everything. I'm like, I don't even know this person. You don't know (laughs) crap about me and you're telling me what to do. Like, don't get me wrong. I think we need to be surrounded with that surround sound. So I don't think it's bad, but man, having these people that know me is super important, but they can't be the traditional advisor. They gotta be somebody that understands what you're about. And I feel like too many advisors lead with product, have the set in their ways systems, you got to fire those people and be much more like Mary. Show up yourself, be the smartest person about cars, and surround yourself with people that know the individual areas.
3: Just to piggyback on that, so my dad was a financial planner, uh, so I grew up with a pretty rosy view of the industry. One of the things that I think people forget is that the best financial planning relationship is you are behind the wheel, and they're riding shotgun with a map. And so there are a lot of people who don't know much about money, and so they need someone to not only have the map, but read it to them and explain it to them. And that's not going to be true of people in the FIRE community. They clearly know the map. What I think is really important is to recognize that you always want to have an expert who can look over what you are planning, and make sure that it makes sense. Make sure that there's not a part of the map that you're missing, because there's always uncharted territory. And you don't want to do trial and error with that necessarily. I mean, there's some some aspects where I think that's the best way to learn. But with money and with uh, certain aspects of your nest egg, there are things that you are going to want to call in someone who can talk to you about that. Now, the, the tough thing is, it's hard to find the right advisor. It's a little bit like, my kids were very young and I was trying to find the right babysitter. I feel like when I was a kid, it was a lot easier, like, oh, the, the kid down the street is 12 and willing to watch my baby for, for uh, three hours for 10 bucks. But for me, like when I, when my kids were little, it was like, I want an adult. I want someone who knows CPR. And so, and I had to do quite a bit of interviewing to find a babysitter who I felt comfortable leaving my child with. And I feel like the fire community has the similar level of protectiveness about what they have built, what they have created. And it's easy to be like, oh, well, it doesn't exist what I'm looking for, you know, someone who can actually help me do this better. But it does. It just takes a little while longer to find it. You know, you're going to have to kiss a lot of frogs to uh, make sure you're not talking to someone who's trying to sell you an annuity or someone who (laughs) leads with product. But that's that is very much available out there if you're willing to do the work and it's worthwhile to make sure that you are covering all your bases you you covering those blind sides that joe was mentioning
0: the wrong question that i see people ask when it comes to advisors the wrong question actually the wrong statement because it's always mentioned as a statement the statement is you're smart enough to do this yourself of course you are I'm smart enough to do this myself. It's not that I'm incompetent. Like I need to show up with a huge level of competence. It's about blind sides. And it's about having somebody to fight me with. I joked at the, I went to Camp Fi Southwest and a guy named Big Earn, who you guys know was there. And I told the room, I'm like, Big Earn would be my advisor because Big Earn is smarter than I am. We disagree on a bunch of stuff and those are who I want. I want somebody who's going to go, no, Joe, you're full of crap. He would be a phenomenal advisor for me. Any somebody that you know, has fully embraces the same thing that we're all after,
2: I hopefully you just convince some people that financial planning isn't the devil and that there can be good <laughs> financial planners out there. And you know, we don't know everything. You don't know what you don't know. What about insurance? I have heard so many debates. Justin and I have gotten comments from people on previous episodes, where we had people talking about insurance. It's always a touchy subject. Feels like there's never a right or uh, I guess there is a wrong answer, which is anything insurance. It feels like there's never a right answer when we talk about the subject. But talk about, I guess, Joe, you can kick it off first. It seemed like it was your style of joke in that chapter. Maybe that part I read. So <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong Got there. But uh, one. <laughs> why are insurance companies which- not ripping us off?
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't even know which joke we're talking about because there's so
2: many. But we'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth. One dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug-and-play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase, That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show.
0: But I'll say this, the wrong question. You know, we talked about the wrong statement with financial planners. Mm. There's also a wrong discussion that insurance companies want you to have, Cody. The discussion they want to have is, hey, this insurance, should you buy it or not? Right? Which insurance is appropriate? You don't want to have that discussion. That's an insurance industry discussion. The bigger discussion is what risks do I have in my life and what's the best way to meet them? Because then we might be able to take insurance completely off the table. And my goal is not to get rid of insurance, by the way. My goal is just to cover the risk. So, but if I can do that in a way that I can do it myself or find other ways around using an insurance product, why wouldn't I consider that? So risk management is what I want to think about not buying insurance, which by the way, means that I start thinking like an insurance company when I do that, because insurance companies have these people that sit in the back room called actuaries. And the actuaries are people that, that figure out the risk that insurance company is going to take. And that's how they price their products. Now, a lot of people say, insurance company, to your point, Cody, people are saying, insurance company's trying to rip me off. I know this insurance is trying to rip me off. Well, you might be able to get something by a state regulator once or twice. All all insurance companies, all insurance products are regulated by the states. So maybe you can convince me that maybe for six months or a year, two years, you might be able to pull the wool over some regulator's eyes but not for a long time. So I don't think they're ripping you off. Here's what I think is happening. I think that the actuaries know the risk and they know the people that buy the product. So they know how dirty that pool is of the people that buy the product. And then they price the product based on their risk assessment. So what I want to do is I want to think about what are the risks in my life that are the big ones and I want to pay specific attention to those. And then I want to stop thinking about the, the things that aren't so risky. So I'll give you an example. Car insurance versus homeowners. Like if you own your house and you own your car, which one is worth more? Probably. Not, not for
1: everybody. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully home. For, there's, there's, some, there's, my, some, there's some
0: counterpoints in Mississippi
1: I could point you for sure. <laughs> but
0: uh, I know some right here in Texarkana, Justin. So yeah, <laughs> it hopefully is your house. But if you look at your insurances on your house and your car, which insurance costs more? Your car insurance. Well, why the hell, if your house is worth a multiple of what your car costs, why the heck is the insurance so different? And the reason is, exactly what I said earlier, it's based on the chance that something's going to happen. Your car is likely to get wrecked much, much more likely. I think the number's like 1 in 350 chance of you having in a car accident, where it's closer to 1 in 1,200 that you'll use your homeowner's insurance. So the first thing I do when it comes to risk management is, I think about that thing that everybody says they don't want and you don't need, which is your emergency fund. I can tell you how many people online talking about Earl and Peoria doesn't know how to zip up his pants. Always says you don't need an emergency fund because that money's earning 0.05%. Let's be clear. They're right. But that's not where your ROI is. Your return on investment with your emergency fund is, if I have that in place, guess what I get to do with my homeowner's insurance? I can jack up my deductible without worrying about it because I've got that money in a bank account that's not in the market, which right now as we're recording this is going south in a hurry, right? (laughs) I don't have to worry about selling these stocks that are down. I got money in this bag. So my ROI is the money I'm saving on my homeowner's policy. That's my return. And by the way, and everybody's always evaluating 0.05 or 0.5%. Like they're going to make an extra 80 bucks on this. Well, think about if I take my deductible from nothing to several thousand dollars. I mean, you could potentially have huge savings, much, much more than that. And that's your ROI. Then your car insurance do the same thing. When you look at your flex benefits, a lot of people listening to this that work for somebody else in their flex benefits package, they have accidental death and dismemberment insurance and they don't have good disability coverage. Why? Because the disability thing is really expensive. AD&D, I can pick up a bunch of that. Well, what does accidental death and dismemberment cover? It covers if you lose like a finger or an eye or something. And if you work in a cubicle, like most of my clients did, what's the chance you're going to (laughs) like clip off your finger between the E and the R key? Like all all of a sudden one day your finger comes off because you're keeping, it's not going to happen. And that's why it's cheap as hell because you're never going to use it. So dump the accidental death and dismemberment insurance. And instead, disability coverage, which is more expensive, use the money you saved to jack up your disability because there's a reason it's expensive. Studies show that you're much more likely to use it. That, Cody, is the way I like to look at insurances. Far, far, far better way of looking at risk management.
2: We will be right back after a quick word from our amazing sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. It's a new year, 2022, but it's feeling harder than ever to find and hire the qualified people you need especially for small businesses and especially during the Great Resignation. That's where LinkedIn Jobs comes in. They make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. I recently hired a video editor and having a platform where I could filter through qualified candidates made it so much easier. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach qualified candidates and beyond on the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Plus, with the LinkedIn Jobs filtering features, it's so easy to figure out who is right and who is wrong for your business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs is rated number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. But basically, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fyshow. That's linkedin.com slash fyshow to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
3: My mom is someone who loves insurance. I was raised by someone who believes in paying for the best insurance you can get. What that taught me was the trade-off. And so the trade-off for my mom was it was a lot easier for her to figure out how to pay the premiums and know that if something happened, if she got into a terrible car wreck, if you know something happened to the house, something happened to her, it would be taken care of. And so for her, that trade-off was very clearly a benefit. So for me, I handle money very differently from my mom. That trade-off doesn't work for me. I want to have the peace of mind that things will be okay if something terrible happens. But the cost of paying those premiums is not going to be worth it to me to get the most expensive insurance out there, the, you know, the best, the premium, the, the concierge insurance, such as what my mom would usually go for. So understanding like, okay, what can I scale back on on one side and up on the other to get to the point where I feel confident that I'm spending my money well on insurance so that if there's something that's really a problem that is beyond my capability with the way that I handle money to pay for in the future without feeling like I'm sending money into the void that I'm never going to see again. And so that's, I think that having had that experience with my family and knowing that I'm never going to be someone who feels like, yes, just take my money. I love it. <laughs> that's never going to be me. It taught me something very important in that you're, you're making a trade-off. And if you come from the idea of like, well, insurance is always wrong. Insurance is bad. Insurance companies are evil. Not necessarily going to disagree with all of those, but if you come from that place, you are missing off on the importance of the trade off of knowing how you're going to handle if something terrible happens because. It likely will. There's likely something is going to happen uh, at some point and you need to know how you will handle it and making sure that you've you know crunched the numbers and figured out what's going to be best and whether that risk is going to be best taken on by an insurance company or that risk is going to be best taken on by your funds.
0: It's funny when people are older, you know, they look at like long term care. And back when I was a financial planner, people would go, well, I'm not, I'm not addressing this long-term care thing because it's expensive. Let's be clear. Like you don't need to buy the insurance, but there's a reason it's expensive. It's because the insurance industry knows this crap's going to happen to you. Like like you probably will have a long-term care stay at some point. So n- not buying the insurance is okay, but, but I would have people in my office that would want to get up from the table and go, okay, we're not going to do that. Well, that's fine, but that's not a strategy. So we have two choices. Choice one is get up from the table and just say, yeah, I'm not going to go with insurance choice two is we're not going with insurance but we can actually come up with an alternate strategy, figure out what we are going to do because walking away from something that all of a sudden you have a stroke or a catastrophic illness and you need help and you haven't thought about it is is not at all a strategy. I heard this thing yesterday. Fear is not a strategy. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. Hey, can I give you guys one just quick insurance tip for everybody, which is this, I had my house broken into when I was at a conference a few years ago and my neighbors called, and said, hey, your door was open. So we w- went to the front door and um and uh th- like our door was clearly jimmied open and it was just it was it was they they just robbed everything we had. It was pretty wild. The insurance company we work with was very happy to help us, but let me tell you what they do. They give you a blank sheet of paper or a or a or, or send you an email with this blank sheet and they say, write down everything that you owned. And the funny thing is, we don't know. And By the way, they say for the computer, for my computer, for my TVs, they wanted serial numbers, if possible. Who keeps the serial numbers? But not even going that far, they were happy to reimburse stuff. But when you start filling this stuff out you realize you've no idea what you own. So do this, pretend it's like MTV Cribs, you know, you're walking through your house and take your phone and just open up drawers and do a quick video of your house and just leave it in the cloud on your phone and if something, you know, if a pipe bursts like happened last winter in Houston or if a tornado goes whatever happens, most insurance companies are happy to help but you got to know what you had. And I got to tell you because I've been telling people to do that forever we had that i didn't have the serial numbers that was that was something i i missed but at the very least um man that that uh video saved my butt
1: as someone who's had their house broke into house fire situations bike stolen like i've definitely you know had my return on investment from insurance i can second that the video idea is a great one the serial number one is also a great one, especially if you have like an expensive bike or just something that's like not normal that you think you might get some pushback on, like a high-end camera. Those big ticket items is where they kind of start to sink in and and ask a few more questions. Um, But we just talked about like some of those tactical things, like some of those financial advisor type things, the insurance, should you hire a financial advisor? Obviously, the financial advisor would probably tell you yes. But earlier, Joe mentioned something about like Emily taking a little bit more of the lead on the psychological ones. And he also mentioned the stock market tanking. And if you're not living under a rock, you probably have realized it's tanking. You're probably getting scared. And I noticed there was one chapter called what to expect when you're investing. And I'm curious if that's something you go into. And if not, I mean, you know, we just talk a little bit about, you know, a lot of people have only seen a bull market other than maybe that blip last year in March, like kind of right. get their head wrapped around that.
3: Yeah. the The sense that, when things are going gangbusters, you are like leading with greed. Like you're, you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. More money, more money in. And then when things are taking a downturn, you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose everything. Take it all out. Take it all out. And that is just human nature. And even the most cold blooded of investors who is able to handle anything can see this happening and still feel like feel a little bit of like, "Ooh, I want to get in on that or, oh, my goodness, I got to take it all out. And that's uh, that's just because as human beings, we are um, wired to react more strongly to a loss than to a gain. Um, And so we really feel these dips in a way that we don't necessarily see field market surges. And it's really important for all of us to come into our investing with a plan. Um, If you just kind of do like rear end investing, I I, kind of um, uh, this is kind of what my husband does. You, You remember when GameStop last year was you know stonks the moon and all of that and uh so you know my husband is on reddit some and he was reading about this and he got excited on two fronts there's the ooh stick it to the man aspect of it like <laughs> to the hedge fund managers and then there's also the ooh people are making money and so he downloaded the robin hood app and i was just like oh, okay have i taught you nothing like, if you're going to do this, please listen to me. And so he he uh, um, invested $200 because it was something, you know, that was basically, this is going to be my fun money to see what happens. And even though I was telling him, like, here's what you do, he's still knowing what I would advise him to do. He took the money out when he shouldn't have. <laughs> he put more in when he shouldn't have. And so that's why it's so important for everyone to come up with a plan and even like, write down or make a script for like what you'll do when that plan is challenged, because we are so um, emotionally invested in how these things uh, work out. And if we don't plan ahead and don't say like, look, I am going to ride out this volatility. This is a long-term investment. I am not planning on taking money out. And so- if it goes down, I know it's gonna be scary. I'm just not gonna look at it. Um, you know, I'm not gonna like refresh every 10 minutes, be like, what what is it now? What is it now? What is it now? And so that you know what your plan is and so you can feel confident that you have decided ahead of time what you will do, and that is makes the difference between like the stratospheric investors, uh, you know, the Warren Buffett's of the world and everybody else. And the people who lose everything every time we have a crash is, is the, the having that plan in place and, and knowing what you'll do. The
0: true pros, you know, and I'm not talking about stock jocks on wall street. So that's a whole different world. I'm talking about like per- professional good advisors. Don't re- react. Don't react at all what they do is build something called an investment policy statement and we do talk about that in the book but we'll talk about it right here because i think this is super important and and what the investment policy statement is here's what i believe i'm investing in low cost index funds I, you know, when I first started my portfolio, it was VTSAX to buy everything. And then when my portfolio built up a little more, then I went to the efficient frontier. We talk about that instead because I think it's free money. And by the way, I hate terms like efficient frontier because it takes something that's not that hard and wall streets. It makes it sound like all mysterious and hard and you can't do it. It's not that difficult, but, um, but I'm going to have a diversified collection of low cost index funds. And here's what I'm going to move. I'm going to move on this date. I'm going to move on this date and then, and then to move, I'm going to rebalance these things. And if I get new information, these are when I'm going to change my investment policy, meaning I'm going to change the machine. I'm not going to make some things based on what I had for lunch. I'm going to say, you know what? I don't think that 30% international makes sense anymore. I think maybe it's 25% and you'll move the machine so that now the machine is working differently. Than it, than it was before. I don't like this idea. You know, there's things that I'm reading lately. I love the idea when the market's down doing your, doing your backdoor Roth IRA makes a ton of sense to me, but by the dip drives me crazy. And the reason it drives me crazy is because you don't know how far it's going to dip. It's a reactive move. And then you're always going to think, well, should I buy this dip? Should I buy that? Should I not buy the dip? Should I buy? It? Is that dippy enough? Is it not to be enough? But How big a dip am I? Like, I have, I have no idea. <laughs> Just trade it once or twice a year and don't get involved in this. I mean, it becomes betting when you start buying the dip. It's not something I love.
2: So even after everything you just said, I'm going to throw myself in the camp of people who get jealous when you do see the Robin Hood millionaires, you see the meme coin millionaires, these people who just like risk it all on this up and coming thing and it pans out for them. And it sucks that it honestly sucks that those people exist because it makes people (laughs) not want to invest in index funds. It makes people not want to invest on the efficient frontier and do all the, 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 you know, the quote unquote right things. How do you guys, I know I checked out the chapters toward the end on Get Rich Quicker. How do you guys think of balancing that risk versus reward? Because obviously you can make a ton of money if you take crazy risks, but it's not usually the most advisable thing, especially coming both you guys from financial planning backgrounds or families.
3: I think recognizing that you're only seeing the reward with those. So, you know, the guy who became a millionaire on Robin Hood overnight or virtually overnight, that's all you're seeing. You're not seeing the other side of it. Um, for For instance, there was a big story of a young twenty year old man who had a like huge like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars paper loss on Robin Hood and committed suicide. And that's the other side of that. And that's something so for me personally, that feels like I don't find gambling fun. Like I've been to Vegas once, like I put money into a slot machine. There was lights and noises and no fun came out and I got no money. And I, I was like, why did I waste money on this? That's how I'm wired. I'm not like, that does not feel like fun to me. And so when you tell me like, look, this is really risky and you could have huge losses that could feel so bad that you feel like suicide is the only answer. Or you could you know go slow and steady and and get there that's enough for me for other folks you know figuring out like well what is your goal what is it you're trying to do so if you are looking at you know these overnight millionaires with nfts with bitcoin with a- anything and you're feeling jealous i feel like it's important to be like what are you jealous of what is it that you wish that you had that they have because that can really help you like Drill down into what level of risk you're willing to take. That can help you drill down into what it is that's is going to help you feel satisfied with where your life is and getting slower growth. Now, and then there's there's a like actually taking big risks. Those are the things where I personally feel like you see that pay off when it's something personal. So we give the the example of you know investing in a business of your own. Or a business of someone you trust, and that's where it's it's doesn't feel like gambling to me. That is like okay, that could be a big risk because that that um, your brother in law's restaurant could go under. The um, the the business that you're trying to build for yourself could could uh, you know just never take off. But you know what goes into it in a way that there's no possible way you could know what goes into you know the latest NFT. It's just a, it's just pulling the lever on the on the one arm bandit and hoping it comes up, you know, all sevens.
0: Which is actually funny because I just had a discussion with a guy Spencer Jacob from the Wall Street Journal who runs the Hurt on the Street column. And he's got a new book out that's called The Revolution That Wasn't. That's about the whole GameStop thing, Cody. So to your point about seeing these people getting rich and you're like, man, maybe I should have taken part in this. It's funny because his book is called The Revolution That Wasn't, he said, because everybody thinks, like Emily's husband, they think, I'm getting the man, I'm getting the man. And he said, let's be clear, Wall Street love that. They love the fact that little people think that they can bring down the man because those people have no idea how much it's rigged against you doing that. And it's the same reason why when you go to Vegas and there's a big winner, there's all kinds of lights and sounds and all this sensory overload, right? And everybody knows who wins in the end, the casino wins. And so when they have a thing like happened last year, what does that do? That creates a bunch of people that think that there's a magic bullet and Wall Street can can provide it. Or this idea that I can buy my way into greatness happens. And, and, and it's frustrating because because really at the end, in the end of that GameStop controversy, it created a bunch of get rich quick people that are going to get their butt kicked um so so that's my first thing. The second thing is we wrote the th- th- that chapter how to get rich quicker. I love that. Like we gave it that clickbaity title for a reason which is because we show you how to do it but I hope when people get done with that chapter they realize what Emily and I think are trying to point out that it is very possible but we want you to know how dangerous it is because the way that you get rich quicker is you strategically under-diversify your portfolio. So let's take a key thing that, that you guys talk about here on the show is a lot of people buy VTSAX as an example, right? The total market. Well, when you go from the total market just to maybe the S&P 500 and you get rid of the small medium-sized companies and the big companies only it's going to move differently when you buy fewer things it's going to wiggle more it's called the standard deviation to put the nerd term on it but but it just it's going to it's going to wiggle more because you own less stuff now if you go from 500 companies now to your favorite 20 but they're companies that you really like better one of two things are going to happen. If you're right, it's going to go up faster. And if you're wrong, it's going to go down faster. And so so the key that we make in the book is that if you want to get rich quicker, strategically under and don't be wrong. Those are the two things. But let's be clear. I mean, let's give you a good example of this. Dave Ramsey, the thousand pound gorilla in this space, Dave Ramsey tells everybody to buy some fairly expensive mutual funds and be diversified that way, right? And the funds he recommends, by the way, have a good track record, American funds he, he, he likes. The, um, that's not how Dave Ramsey did it. Dave Ramsey didn't follow his own advice to get filthy rich. He built one company, one, and he wasn't wrong. It worked out great. Now, let's look at Dave Ramsey's history, though, because he's great to look at on both sides. What did he do before that? He bought some real estate, used a bunch of leverage, and lost his butt. So Dave Ramsey underdiversified twice. The first time he lost everything, the second time he built a company, one company, and used it using those lessons to get rich. So that's the point of the end of that. And I think that's how you balance it.
1: I think it's a great way to look at it. And I love that also the thing you brought up about Wall Street loving actually this GameStop thing and thinking like, hey, here's some free publicity to create some people who think... This can happen because even if they lose that one time, like they know bigger picture, there's going to be other versions of GameStop that people are going to get excited (laughs) about and lose Mm -hmm. their money on. And so the thing about that big picture, like in the end, they win. And speaking of like in the end, you know, I know you mentioned kind of what makes this book different is the kind of the style it's written in. But I also think the fact that you cover things like estate planning, which I don't see covered as much, like you kind of see, you know, up until you retire and then kind of the book falls off. (laughs) I I like how you added in, you know, estate planning and what to do in the end, because a lot of people, they're not just trying to build this wealth for themselves. They're trying Mm -hmm. to change like generations and families. So I don't know if you could kind of talk a little bit about that chapter.
3: My dad passed away in 2013, and unfortunately, he made a bad choice in who would be the executor of his will and the trustee of his trust. And so my sister and I were victims of inheritance theft, a person that my dad trusted wasted all the money the money that he intended to come to me and come to my sister and eventually to his grandchildren, we didn't get any of it. It's really important to me for people to understand how prevalent that problem is, uh, because because it was happening to me, I've written about inheritance theft quite a bit. Um, both, you know, talking personally, and then while we were in the midst of the lawsuit against the trustee, um, I, I would write kind of impersonally about it. And I still, I mean, with the articles I wrote in like twenty seventeen, I still to this day getting comments saying like this happened to me. What do I do? And so the importance of estate planning is is Something that we kind of gloss over because well we won't be there, but it's and it's unpleasant to think about, and it feels like oh well like I trust my my family, I trust my wife, I trust my husband, I trust my sister and brother. Like we have this feeling like they wouldn't go against my wishes, you know. Just telling them that I want this to happen will be enough. And the thing is, it's not. It it, it never is. With very very few exceptions, if you just like verbally let people know what you want, they will hear what they want to hear. They will rationalize what they want to do. And then it's a, you need to remember that grief has its own rules. Um, when people are grieving, I feel like it's like whoever they are concentrates, like all the, the, the water is sucked out by their grief. And so the person that my dad chose to be his trustee, um, my stepmother, was grieving him and I, you know, give her that, that she loved him very, very much. But because of that, she, it made her all of her worst impulses, like times 10. And so those are those are things that I just feel really passionate about. I I want to make sure people understand how important it is to get these things in place, make sure that you have uh, fail safes in place as well, because my dad had a, a, a will. He had a trust, but he didn't have enough oversight to make sure that his wishes would be followed because that is what you want to do. You want your legacy not only to be that you can leave money to your kids or or wherever it is, you want it to also be that your family's not upset at you. Because I spent several years very angry at my father um, when I wanted to be grieving him. And so recognizing that that also is part of estate planning is like cementing your legacy as someone who you can grieve rather than be angry at after you die
0: a guy who in a couple hours we're having game night here in the basement cuz that's what we do we just play board games uh, and make podcasts but this guy who's coming over is this great story about his grandfather died grandma in a nursing home his deadbeat cousins his good for nothing cousins showed up at 3:30 in the 3:30 in the morning at the nursing home to quote take grandma to breakfast with a bunch of paperwork that they were trying to get her to sign right after grandpa died and make sure that they got all this money. But even for people that, would, that that won't happen, I think just making sure that you have a beneficiary on everything, you've thought about clearly the things that Emily's talked about, you've got checks and balances. Even if you don't have assets yet, if you're just starting out, I'll tell you a couple important people to, to, to nominate. One is a durable power of attorney, which is somebody that can deal with your financial stuff if you're not able to. So if you're in a coma or unable to talk to your doctor or or talk or make financial decisions, somebody can still pay the rent or car payment, whatever it might be. The second thing is a healthcare directive, which uh, lets somebody nominate somebody who will meet with uh, your your healthcare providers because in a lot of states, they're not really allowed to talk to anybody. My brother just died and it was wild going through all of these, you know, these HIPAA rules about who they can talk to and who they can't talk to. So have those at the least, but more than that, get the right estate planning done. This is where, again, you know, we talked about doing it yourself. It It isn't about being smart enough to, to figure out the will stuff and there's will things online. You can go do the, do it yourself, but it's these little horrible things. What I like about having an attorney do it is the fact that your family's going to have to hire an attorney when you die. And I like the fact that I can pre choose that attorney, assuming something might happen to me in the next 15, 20 years and the person's still practicing or the the firm's still there. I can deal with that. But, but, but you know, what are my kids going to do? My kids right now are 26. I pass away. They don't know who an attorney that like, they're just going to go, Find somebody. Well, well, I can I can do that ahead of time and make sure that they're working with competent people.
2: All right. Well, on that happy note, talking about (laughs)
1: estate
3: planning, (laughs) and we all die. I am so much fun at parties. Let me tell you, (laughs) it's the one
1: thing we can guarantee is going to happen in your financial journey is you're going to lose it
3: all. That that is true.
1: (laughs)
0: Yes, yes. None of us get out of here alive. That is
2: true. Good old. Is that Ben Franklin? Death and taxes, that quote. (laughs) Somewhat important. Okay. Well, for those who are interested in all the stuff we're talking about today, some things that might not be what everyone's paying attention to in the fire community, like insurance and financial planning and estate planning i think you're right justin like we don't really hear people talk about that that much and i haven't read many books kind of just tapers off after the retirement piece but for people who are interested in this stuff and who want to kind of keep that risk profile to a minimum and retire happy and not have their deadbeat cousins stealing their family's money where can people read this book check out stacked your super serious guide to modern money management and where can people keep up with you guys
3: you can find Stacked anywhere books are sold. If you are shopping online, you can always go to Amazon, of course. Um, Joe and I both really like bookshop.org, which is another way to order online that um, benefits local independent bookstores. Uh, and as Joe, Joe mentioned, this, the, the germ of this idea came from an independent bookstore. So we'd love to show, show some love to those uh, wonderful bookstores. And then you can also find um, ways to order the book if you go to my website, emilyguyberkin.com forward slash stacked. Uh, and then Joe also has some ways to reach him in the book.
0: Yeah. Most people, you know, that listen to podcasts are into audiobooks. Mm-hmm. I like the, our audio book narrated by this really awesome dude. Emily joins that awesome dude. But also what's cool is there's two things you get here that you don't get with the written book, which is the woman that plays my mom on the show. My friend, Julie Ray Harrison does all the mom stuff that's in the book. Also, where we have snippets of interviews from the Stacking Benjamin show at the end of every chapter that kind of put a point on a lot of these, these uh, uh, great people in our corner of the world that, um, that are great at these individual topics. On the audio book, you actually hear the actual interview instead of uh, kind of really much more written for publication uh, interview version. in the book. <laughs> yeah, condensed version. Thank you. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> also, it's stackingbenjamins.com slash stacked. Uh, uh, Emily Guy Birkin slash stacked. will give you all the links. Last thing though, is I'm going on a 40 city tour to see as many money geeks as possible. I'm pretty excited. We're, we're headed to one of the places where your friends will appreciate. We're headed to Longmont. Mr. Money Mustache is, is doing an event for us in Longmont. So that'll be fun, but we're going all over the place. And to find out where we're going to be near you, once again, either Emily Guy slash stacked or stackingbenjamins.com com slash Stacked. And we hit the road in March. And Emily, I think, is on about half of the 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 stops. My co-host on Stacking Benjamins, the podcast, OG, will be on some. My mom's neighbor, Doug, uh, Doc G, who's on our show a lot, will be on some. And hopefully, we'll see Cody and Justin as we go around the country. Add some. So we're gonna have money geeks. Hopefully, our money geek friends from all over the country, Jonas. So please come on out.
1: Love it. Maybe we'll see just a big caravan going around the country. And I can't wait to see, uh, I can't wait to see just these like worn out, dog-eared versions of this book for years to come <laughs> sure. as people just take this through life. But I really do. I appreciate you both coming on the show. It's been a great episode. It's a ton of fun. I'm sure the book is a very fun read. I know we talked about some serious topics, but I'm sure it's done in a very light and fun way. So I appreciate you coming on. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at slash community and we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefishow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.